Hey, this is Kyle Eidelman from Southeast Christian Church, and I'm going to thank you for listening to the message today. As we open up the scriptures together, I pray that this message inspires you, challenges you, and is the right word at just the right time in your life. Enjoy the message. Well, you see the title of the sermon? Some of you are in for a surprise. If you didn't, it's on you. If you didn't see the title of the sermon, what that tells me is you haven't really been coming the last few weeks or paying that close of attention. You should have known. And now, if you walk out now, it's gonna feel obvious to everybody. I, uh, I thought somebody else would preach it. Uh. Why, why, why are you clapping? The... Uh, awkwardness of the moment <laughs> just got worse. Like you think, I mean, how, how much worse could it be than preaching on sexuality to a large group of multi-generational people? Oh, it can get worse. I've never done that. I've been preaching for 25 years. I've never kicked over my stand. I don't know if it's nerves. That's the third service. I think I'd feel okay about it by now, but I don't. I still feel a little uneasy. There's something about this subject that brings it out of us. We just um, aren't quite sure how to talk about it in church sometimes, which is interesting, because this is the one place we should feel most comfortable talking about. We should never be ashamed to talk about what God wasn't ashamed to create. But we still feel that way. I get it. I, um, I hope I can make you feel as awkward the next 30 minutes as I do, although I doubt it. After what just happened, I, I, think, I'll, I think I'll probably feel more awkward. Somebody somewhere will put that in slow motion and it'll just be on a loop, social media, <laughs> all day today. Uh, we're in a series called The Generous Marriage. And what we've talked about in the series is that our love for our spouse should reflect God's love for us. That's one of the ways God designed marriage to work is that it would be a picture, it would be an illustration of how he loves us, that we can show the world God's love by the way we love one another as, as husband and wife. And if we're gonna demonstrate God's love in our marriage, then certainly it should be marked by generosity. If you look at the love of God, it's generous. God so loved the world that he what? He gave. God so loved the world he gave, gave his only son. And Jesus said, I've not come to serve, be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Generosity marks the love of God for you. And generosity then should mark our love as a husband, as a wife in marriage. It just so happens too that the University of Virginia did a study that showed this correlation between couples that were most happy in their marriage and couples who ranked the highest on their generosity scale. The, the couples who were the happiest in their marriage were the most generous to one another. There's something really beautiful about that where a husband and wife are both in some ways competing to see who can outdo one another when it comes to generously expressing love. The way they define generosity I think was helpful, it's a good definition, as giving good things to your spouse freely and abundantly. And things... It's not necessarily an object that you buy at a store. It's acceptance, it's affirmation, it's admiration, it's encouragement, it's, it's attention, time, and giving good things to your spouse freely and abundantly. The way that we've defined this is 
generosity, giving without expectation and giving beyond expectation, right? So giving without expectation means that you're not giving, expecting something in return. The minute you expect payment or repayment, it's no longer a generous marriage, now it's a transactional marriage. I do for you, you do for me. And giving in a way that's beyond expectation. It's more than what's expected. Now, for some of you, you're married to someone who has incredibly unrealistic expectations, and those expectations have made it very difficult for you to be generous. But in a marriage where there are healthy expectations, generosity should be marked by giving beyond what's expected. Giving without expectation, giving beyond expectation. And when that happens in a marriage, it's, it's, it's a beautiful picture of God's love for us. And so... Last week, we talked about emotional generosity, that we are generous with attention, affection, appreciation, and acceptance. And what I would say is if you're watching this message, maybe you've tuned in because you're interested in the subject matter, like the word sex shows up, and you're like, well, I wonder what that's about. What I would tell you is don't listen to this message without listening to last week's message and without listening to next week's message. Because if you take if you take sex and sexuality outside the larger context, it creates all kinds of problems. Like God didn't d- design it to just be its own lane, but rather it goes with emotional, and as we'll see next week, it goes with, this, with spiritual. If all you do is pay attention to the, to the dashboard where it says sex, then you're, and you ignore emotional and spiritual, then you're, you're missing it. And, and so if you're just listening to this week, can I challenge you, listen to last week, listen to next week, I, uh, I have a friend who served in the military and he saw that I was preaching on sexual generosity. And when he saw that, he said, hey, that's, that's what we call no-go territory. And I said, what do you mean by that? I mean, I thought I knew, right? I could infer it, but maybe there was some military explanation. He said, well, there are parts of the world where there are lots of landmines that are in the ground. In fact, I looked this up, there's like 100 million landmines still in the ground from decades ago. And if you know of an area that have, has a lot of um, landmines, it's referred to as a no-go territory, no-go area. You just don't get close to it. Because it doesn't matter how careful you are or how intentional you might be, that it's still possible that you're gonna take a step and hit a landmine. And, and this subject is very much like that. There are lots of landmines. I feel that. But I think, here's what I think, I think the enemy has placed landmines all around the subject in hopes that you and I, that the church would stay away from it. That's what I think. That he's put all these landmines in hopes that the the church would look at this and say, that's a no-go territory. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that this is God's ground. The Bible would teach that this is God's territory. This is his turf because he's the one who designed it and created it. He's the one who understands its purpose and how it best works. And so we approach this territory with confidence. We approach this conversation knowing that God loves us and what God wants is what's best. And so we wanna talk about it honestly and transparently. I I want us to walk through this by just unpacking a simple sentence. I'm gonna put it in three parts. Here's part one, where we will begin. God designed sex. God designed sex. God is the designer, he's the creator, he's the architect of sex. He created sex with a purpose. So in Genesis, God says to Adam and Eve, you know, be fruitful and multiply. Part of the purpose of sex is, of course, procreation, but... 
what we also understand in scripture is that sex within a marriage is meant to be both a picture and an accelerator of the oneness and intimacy that he wants a husband and wife to experience together. So look again at Genesis 2.24. God says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined or be united to his wife and they will become, here's the word, one flesh. They will become one flesh. Now Jesus adds to this in the gospels and Jesus, and he gets to do that because he's Jesus. And he says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so Jesus describes this one flesh as a physical, a physical expression of a supernatural union. It's a physical expression of a supernatural union, yet there's something divine about it. One of the words that helps us understand God's design for sex in scripture is the word know or the word knew. Example, Genesis 4 verse 1, it just says Adam knew his wife. This is sexual reference. He knew his wife. That sexual intimacy is a deep knowing. It's a being known completely, this emotional, spiritual, and physical knowing. Last week, we talked about being generous with acceptance. And we said that what we want more than anything else, most of us, is we want to, as Genesis says, we want to be naked and not afraid. Naked and not ashamed. We want acceptance. We want to be fully accepted by someone. We want to fully accept someone. And sex is an expression of that. It's a physical expression. A wife physically accepting her husband. It's, it's a picture of this kind of generous knowing, generous acceptance. And look, this is why, this is why in a marriage where you have a partner who's constantly demanding, it just robs this or you have constant rejecting, where there's constant demanding and constant rejecting, it does so much damage because it is contrary to the purpose God had in mind of acceptance and knowing. The word for one flesh in Genesis 2.24, the Hebrew word here is ekad, ekad. And it, it just is a divine fusing together. A divine fusing together, it's supernatural, it's sacred. Part of that is, though, you can't violate a cod without violating yourself. Like God has designed this in such a way that it bonds you to the person that you're with, and if you violate that bond outside of marriage, then you end up violating yourself. You violate the bond and the gift that God wants you to have in marriage. Now look, I believe, listen, I believe God restores that. I believe God can restore Ikad in marriage. I believe Jesus can redeem Ikad. I believe all of that. But please don't buy into the lie that sex can be casual. It cannot be casual. And when, when you treat it casually, here's what happens. Your heart and your ability to, to bond become the casualty, it becomes the casualty. God created sex, he designed it as, part two of the sentence, a good gift. He designed sex as a good gift. And I know some of you, uh, you know, you're uncomfortable right now. Uh, you, you grew up in religious circles where like any association to the word sex brought uh, shame and secrecy or sexual desire, shame and secrecy, couldn't talk about those things. And, and yet this is what God created. 
And so we're not ashamed to celebrate what God wasn't ashamed to create, right? Like, what's that say if God says, here's the gift for you, and we say, okay, I'm gonna just hide that in the back room. I'm, I'm gonna put that in the closet. I don't want anybody to really know about that. Thanks, hey, God, thank you for this gift, but I'm, I'm gonna treat that like it's something to be ashamed of. I mean, what's that communicate to God as the creator of that? I know that some of you, I'll get messages this week from some of you who think that this sermon's inappropriate and we shouldn't be talking about sex in church, but that's our brokenness around it. Like that's not how scripture approaches this. Song of Solomon in the Old Testament tells about a passionate uh, love between a husband and wife and it's, it's full of sexual language and imagery celebrating physical union and marriage. And in chapter five, verse one, the husband and wife um, have just made love in this chapter. They're lying in bed, they're cuddled up together, and we read this moment. It's the only moment in the entire book where God speaks. It's the only time where we hear from him is right after this moment. And, and God's not angry or upset. Like, God doesn't look down at them and say, what in the world was that? Like, what, what are you doing? Like, that wasn't, that's not the tone of this. Instead, here's what we read, chapter five, verse one. God says, eat, O friends, drink, yes, drink your fill, O lovers. God celebrates it. It's a good, it's a good gift, a picture of satisfaction, a picture of connectedness, this one flesh that God had in mind, this intimacy. I think it's been understood somewhat, although perhaps incomplete, in an experiential way throughout history. But in more recent years, science has learned more about how our bodies uh, find emotional bonding during this physical union. During sex, oxytocin is released. It's a hormone that causes a person to feel emotionally attached to the other. It's actually the same hormone that's released when a mother is breastfeeding. It, it creates bond, it creates attachment. And so this is a beautiful gift that God gave a husband and wife. Like when you get married, here's God's gift to you. This, this powerful biological response that ties your heart to someone else. There's this pair bonding that takes place. And of course you can violate that. It can be really dangerous outside of marriage. Lots of dangerous dynamics. If you're single and things become physical quickly, it get the, that, that, the power of that confuses your feelings. Some, some of you have experienced this. It confuses your feelings, it creates this premature attachment. And, and this, is what, this is why sometimes a breakup can feel like a divorce. It's, it's because this gift has been opened outside the context of what God had in mind. And so when this bond takes place outside of marriage, it, it can erode this with, with your spouse. But it's a gift it's a gift in marriage. It's a gift that God wanted for a husband and wife to experience together. Um, it not only connects a husband and wife together, but biologically, it's just interesting the more we learn about it. It boosts our immune system, it lowers your blood pressure, lowers risk of a heart attack, it acts as a natural painkiller and muscle relaxer, it improves sleep by releasing prolactin. A decade-long study of 1,000 couples showed it translated into living longer. It keeps you looking younger. One study uh, of couples who had frequent and consistent sex looked seven to 12 years younger than couples who didn't. I turned, I turned 73 next week. <laughs> uh, seven, I'd say, like God. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> so, 
was stupid. <laughs> a, a, good, a good gift isn't just something, here's the point, a good gift isn't just something to be tolerated, it's something to be celebrated. So God gives us this good gifts, gift, and when we tolerate it rather than celebrate it, I think that's offensive to God. So listen, let me say this clearly. This is not just God's gift towards husbands. Doesn't seem like that should have to be said if you just read scripture. But part of the problem is culturally, and even among those who believe God created sex, sometimes overtly or inadvertently, we seem to define sex this way, as God's plan for husbands to experience pleasure and physical release. That's how it sometimes gets talked about, like it's this one-sided physical act for men. That is not biblical. That's not what the Bible teaches. And the reinforcement of that narrative throughout oftentimes history or generations has created this self-fulfilling problem that is often, often has to be addressed in marriages. It's not something God just created for husbands. If that were true, then why did God create women by many measures to have a greater physical capacity for sexual pleasure than men? And so it's meant to be this mutually pleasurable gift that God gave for both husbands and wives. So here's our sentence. God designed sex. He knows how it works. He, he, he designed it for a purpose as a good gift. Like it might not seem good to you because it's been taken advantage of or it's caused a lot of hurts. It happened, some things happened outside of God's plan for it, but his intent was for it to be a good gift for you to experience in your marriage, here's the last part of that sentence. God designed sex as a good gift for you to give to your spouse, for you to give to your spouse. It's rightly enjoyed when a husband and wife are, are generous with one another. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to if it's only going one direction, but when a, a husband and wife are thoughtful and selfless and humble and tender and passionate and encouraging and supportive, it, it, it's, it's a beautiful gift to give to one another. And so if you look at it this way, then it, it changes your approach. It, it's something that God gave you to give to. You start looking at it through that lens. Oh, God's given me this gift, and part of me experiencing his generosity is by giving it to my spouse. And when you have a husband and wife who are both committed to that, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I especially appreciate the way the message paraphrases 1 Corinthians 7. Paul writes to a church in Corinth they are trying to have a sexual ethic that honors Jesus, but they're in a world with lots of sexual dysfunction. And, and their tendency was, and this has sadly sometimes been the approach of the church in these types of things, when the world goes this far, they just swing the pendulum way over to the other side. And so there was this idea in the Corinthian church of even in marriage, shouldn't have anything to do with each other sexually. And so Paul writes to correct some of that he says, sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. The marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. We read that and we're like, well, yeah, of course. First century, that's not how that would have read. They would have been, what? Because in those days, the, a, a wife would have had almost no rights. It wasn't about her. Paul says, no, in, in marriage, it's a place of mutuality. The husband is putting his wife's needs ahead of his own, seeking to satisfy his wife, and the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. I love that. It's a decision to serve. It's an opportunity. Marriage is an opportunity to live out the example of Jesus to, to serve, to live out Philippians 2 of considering others' needs ahead of our own. And, and one of the ways you know you're not doing this 
is because you hear that and you think, oh, I hope my spouse hears that. I hope my spouse hears that, that he or she should be putting my needs ahead of his or her own, right? That mindset means that you're not doing it because you're thinking how they need to do it rather than thinking about how you can do that as a servant. One of the prayers I pray over couples when they get married is, God, may their greatest moments of happiness come from seeing one another's needs being met. I think that's a, a, it's a response that parents understand. If you're generous with your child and, 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 and you see them delight in that generosity and, and, and they're grateful, it, there's nothing better than that. You'd rather do that than do what you wanna do. And in marriage, when there's that mutual commitment, it's just, it's a beautiful thing. I, I want you to think just for a moment of how contrary this definition or this sentence is to the way the world has discipled us to think about sex, where sex is selfish, and we're conditioned to think of it as, uh, it's for my needs, it's to satisfy my desires. Um, an example of this, you know, on the more extreme side would be pornography, that porn, wires your brain to think of sex as this purely physical act. And here's what it conveys, kind of a, a more poignant example of what our culture would convey, is that when it comes to sex, we're users and we're consumers. We're users and consumers. And so when you, when you watch porn, you're creating these neural pathways in your brain that become a sexual script for your relationships where you are a user and a consumer, which is the opposite of what God designed it to be, where you are a giver and you are a servant. It, it, it reinforces the narrative, oftentimes, not always, but it reinforces the narrative that men are sexual users and women are sexual objects, and it teaches that the, the approach to sex is to selfishly take rather than generously give. If God designed sexual pleasure to bond you to the person you're with, here's, here's a question. What happens when the majority of the sexual pleasure you experience is by yourself? Like, what happens? Well, it bonds you to yourself. It's all about your needs and your desires, and they should be met on demand. And this is why we see this increased but um, much more clear connection between narcissism and excessive pornography use. Not surprising that those two things are being found to go together because it teaches you that sex is a consumable commodity and, and that it's something that you're owed. Uh, it, it, it teaches a sexual user, you don't have to give anything, all you gotta do is take. And, and, and culturally, that's just, I mean, it's just the opposite. Let, let me put it in two different sentences to compare this. The world would say sex is a physical act that makes you feel good. Kind of like scratching an itch. It's a physical act that makes you feel good. The Bible would teach God designed sex as a good gift to give your spouse. I mean, do you see how different that perspective is? And so here's what I wanna do for a few minutes is I wanna talk about how to be sexual, how we can be sexually generous with one another in marriage, okay? You up for this? <laughs> Nervous laughter. Just wanna take a minute to say hi to my mom. Thank you, good to, really nice for you to come to church this weekend. And um, um, yeah, I wanna talk about this because the Bible, again, the Bible would celebrate it. I, I do want to just, before jumping in there, I do wanna just point out a few potential landmines so I wanna say something clearly if you'll listen in on this. I, I, I realize there are some people, a risk 
in a sermon like this is that there's some people, there is a spouse that is emotionally exploitive, coercive, demanding, entitled, that will try to weaponize what I'm about to talk through. Don't do that. There's a spouse that will listen to this message and become more entitled and more demanding. And if you do that, you are missing the point of the message. Instead of becoming more generous and more thoughtful and more tender, you become more demanding and more entitled. And I just want you to know, if you decide to play it that way, if you decide to play it like that, it will do nothing but drive your spouse's heart further away. The moment you use this message to make your spouse feel shame, you can bet they will lose any desire for any of it. Demanding and exploiting is robbing your spouse of the opportunity to be generous with you, which whether you believe this or not or know it or not, there was a day when that's what your spouse really wanted, really wanted. And your demanding and your exploitation robbed them of that chance. And you're sabotaging any chance you have of the kind of sexual intimacy that you were made for in your marriage. I also know that there are some spouses who hear this and they will feel bitter and resentful. Like your spouse has made mistakes in this area. They've caused perhaps a lot of hurt in this area and you refuse to give your spouse any chance to change. Like that wall is built up and, and you're not gonna be hurt like that again. There's not gonna be any vulnerability there. And when you hear messages like this, you feel yourself become even more bitter and more cynical because of what you feel like you were robbed of, but you're now robbing your spouse of an opportunity to grow in generosity and to do things differently. And so, all that to say, listen, what I'm gonna talk through here is designed for a mutually loving marriage between a husband and a wife who genuinely desire what's best for one another. That's the context of this conversation. Do not... Do not use this sermon as ammunition to shame your spouse. You hear me? Do not do that. And do not use this sermon to build bricks of bitterness in the wall that's already dividing you. Don't do that. So, how can we be sexually generous? I needed a better transition there, but here we are. Number one, be generous with perspective and patience. I've discovered that nothing makes people more generous than taking the time to see something from someone else's perspective. That's true when it comes to being financially generous, and it's true when it comes to being sexually generous in your marriage. When you take the time to allow your spouse to be vulnerable and share feelings with you, then they see things from your perspective, and and it begins to shift some things, right? Like, when when you decide that you're gonna be humble and courageous enough to to share some challenges and some struggles in your life instead of of being um, defensive, instead of being demanding, it gives your spouse an opportunity to sit where you sit. And, And so there's something about this. When you put yourself in their position, you become more aware of the pressures they're dealing with, the insecurities they're wrestling with. It it makes you wanna be more generous, but it it's more than that. It's not just the day that they've had, right? It's, it's, it's their pain and their past and the feel, fears and their failures that they bring into the nakedness of that moment that you need to know and, and be patient with, have the right perspective. First Peter 3, 7 specifically calls out husbands for this, although I think it certainly applies to wives too. And it says, husbands, live considerately, live with a, with a tender understanding of, of your wives, patient understanding. Live, live considerably, considerately with 
your wives. And, and then at the end of that verse, he gives a, a reason. He says, here's why you want to do that. And you might think it would say, husbands, live considerately with your wives so that your wife will feel loved and cherished, so that your wife will be happy, happy wife, happy life. Like you would expect it to say something like that. It doesn't. Here's what it says. Husbands, live considerately with your wives in order or so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now that seems like a bit of a disconnect to me. Like if I am harsh and demanding with my wife, why does that get in the way of my prayers to God? I don't, I don't quite get the connection. Or I didn't until my daughters got married. And, and once they got married, this verse made a lot more sense to me. And I love my sons-in-law, I've got awesome sons-in-law. Not much I wouldn't do for either of them. I love being generous with them. If we go out to eat, um, I love to pay if they'll let me. And they, they let me. I, I, if we go on vacation, I, you know, I, if it's birthdays, Christmas, I, I, mean, I love being generous with them. You know what would get in the way of my generosity towards them? If they weren't living considerately with their wives. You know why? Because their wives are my daughters. And so when they're generous and tender and thoughtful and kind to my girls, what do you want, boys? Like, I w- I'd love to be generous with you. If that were not the case, things would change quickly, right? And, and so it is that your wife is God's daughter. Do not treat her inconsiderately or harshly and then turn around and expect God to treat you generously in your prayers. Number two, be generous with passion and praise. Uh, those might... I don't know, those might seem like a strange combination unless you've read the Song of Solomon. And then it goes together quite well because here's what you see in the Song of Solomon that that sexual generosity is a physical responsiveness and a verbal responsiveness. It's being physically responsive and it's being responsive with your words that those two things go together to create intimacy and, 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 and generosity. I'm giving an example of this from chapter four, verse one. Um, husband and wife are... In the hotel room, he says, chapter four, verse one, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. And he uses his words to set her at ease, to make her feel safe. Verse one, your eyes behind your veil are like dove, doves, and he compliments her eyes, which, which tells you where he's looking, he's looking into her eyes. And then verse one, your hair is like, eh, uh, your hair's like a flock of goats. Like, uh, he's trying, y'all. Like, he, <laughs> he was on a roll. And he's like, it's the hair, your hair is like a flock of goats. And it just, it, he was nervous. But he's, he's trying. And then in verse two, he starts to speak of her teeth. And think about this, though. Like, why would he speak of her teeth? I think it's because she's smiling. Right? Like maybe not. Maybe she just had a bad, like a really bad over, overbite. Like, like may, maybe, maybe. But I think, <laughs> I think for the most part, you know, you, you can see someone's teeth when they're having fun, when they're smiling. I, I kind of wonder what happened here is that he said flock of goats. She laughed a little and he said, oh, look at those teeth. Those, are, those teeth are cute. But it's this picture of them having fun together. But what we won't keep reading because... It gets a little more awkward, but here's what, here's what I want to underline for you is that he is not in a hurry. That's what I want to draw your attention to. This is not all about him. He's not in a hurry. He's, 
giving her attention. Tension is building. And then verse 16, she responds, and she's verbally generous. Awake north wind and come south wind. Blow on my garden that his fragrance, fragrance may spread abroad. Let my lover come into his garden and taste his choice fruits. And we're just gonna let that be poetic language. Um, <laughs> Because he crosses over this, or she, she crosses over this PG-13 line. But what I want you to see is that she's very generous with responsiveness. And that's reflected in the words that she speaks. And the Bible teaches the power of our words. Life and death, it says. That our words create worlds. And with your words of death, you can destroy sexual intimacy. You can just destroy it. Your demanding words, your entitled words, your shaming words, your critical words, your harsh words, your demeaning words, just destroy it. If, with your words, you can bring life to it. Encouraging words and tender words and passionate words and affectionate words and admiring words and comforting words, power of life. And as marriages age and bodies and hormones change, words can even play a more dynamic role in sexual generosity. Number three, be generous with playing and with pleasure. When I say playing, I'm, I'm talking about like the fun and the flirting and, and not taking everything so serious. I, I think when God created sex for husband and wife, he wanted it for them to have an opportunity to just be together, to play together, to have fun together. I mean, and not to mention how economical it is. It's incredibly economical. Like it, he, he designed it this way. And so this is why when it becomes obligation or duty, you ever wonder why that creates so much dysfunction? This is why. It's because God never designed it to be that way. And when it gets treated that way, all kinds of problems. Second Corinthians 9, 7 says that when we give, and it's financially here, but it applies to what we're talking about. When we give, we don't give reluctantly or under compulsion, not out of obligation, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. I was thinking about how I would wanna encourage some of you who want to be this way, but like you want to want to be this way, but you don't wanna be this way. Does that make sense? Like I, I, sometimes when I talk to people about money and giving generously and they didn't have that modeled, never saw that example, like they want to want to, but they don't want to. And when I talk to someone like that, I'll say, hey, why don't you just pray about it? Just pray that God would give you his heart for people. Pray that God would give you a desire. He loves a cheerful giver. So just start praying that he would, he would create that within you. And I would say, if that's where you are when it comes to sexual generosity, I would say the same thing. Like if you, if you want to want to, but you don't really want to, just begin praying about it. One of the ladies on our staff gave this counsel to a group that she taught. She said, sincere and consistent prayers about sex, uh, about your sex life have the power to change your marriage. Ask God to give you a passion for your spouse sexually. Start thanking God for the gift of touch and how your spouse touches you. Start asking God to help you experience sexual intimacy like you never have before. Pray this prayer. Dear God, help me to know what to do to bring pleasure to my spouse and give me a desire to do it. I, I think that's great counsel. You just pray that prayer. God, help me to know what to do to bring pleasure to my spouse and give me the desire to do it. God loves a cheerful giver. I've said before that there's power in a controlling metaphor to change our environments and then change who we are. And I, I would just say, what would happen if your bedroom, if you thought of it as a playground? 
thought of it as a playground. And some of you say, well, right now it's a battleground. I'm like, yeah, that's the problem. Like change it from battleground to playground. You need a, you need a new metaphor. Because on the playground, you, you have fun. On the playground, there's certain things you don't talk about. You don't talk about your in-laws on the playground. Nobody goes to the playground and says, you know, let's talk about in-laws. Like you don't talk about financial stress on the playground. You, you don't talk about your teenage kids on the playground. All of that, off limits. Now you talk about those things, but keep them off the playground. And what if you just decided your bedroom was gonna play, be a place of laughter and, and joy and you were gonna protect that playground from all these other things? In a world that's full of pain and pressure, in a world that's full of uncertainty and disappointment, God created a husband and wife to have this special time where they could get away from it all, a place to escape. One of the more helpful formulas I came across this week for sexual generous marriage was um, this formula of decreasing pressure and increasing pleasure that in that environment, sexual generosity grows, decreasing pressure and increasing pleasure. And so let me just ask you a few questions, married couples in the room, as we wrap up. Do I act entitled to sex or am I grateful for it? It's incredibly difficult to be generous with somebody who's entitled, incredibly difficult. But it's fun to be generous with someone who is delighted, someone who's grateful. Am I more focused on my pleasure or theirs? Do I view sex as a gift to celebrate or a burden to tolerate? Do I treat sex like an obligation or an opportunity to connect? Do I think of sex like a gift to give or a duty to perform? Do I placate my spouse or do I pursue my spouse? Do I pressure my spouse or do I pursue my spouse? Do I use sex to punish my spouse or to show acceptance of my spouse? Is our bedroom a battleground or is it a playground? Do I use sex to control and coerce or do I use it to connect? And I hope one of the things that comes out of this message is just the need for us, whether you're married or single, the need for us to start paying much closer attention to how we think about these things. That our lens through which we see this just needs to be cleared off. We need a new way of understanding here's what God wants, here's his intent, and it's beautiful. I recently read about a couple who, um, who wanted to uh, have their house painted and, and they had some cracks in the wall and so they had a painter come in and the painter came in, patched up the cracks, painted over them, and everything looked good, they paid the painter. But then like a few weeks or months later, those cracks in the wall start to show back up. So they brought in a new painter and said, hey, can you give us a bid to take care of these cracks in the wall? And the, the painter said, I can't really give you a price on that because you don't have a, a crack in the wall problem. You've got a foundation problem. You, you, keep, you keep covering up these uh, cracks in the wall. They're, they're just gonna come back and it's gonna get worse. You don't have a crack in the wall problem. You have a foundation problem. I'll just say that one of my fears in a sermon like this is that it, it treats a foundation problem like it's a crack in the wall problem. That, that some of the sexual dysfunction, some of the hurt, some of the, the pain that's happening in your marriage around this subject, it's, it's, not, it's not just that. And, and you, we can address those things and you can grow in those and it'll look better for a little while. But if you've got a foundation problem, then don't treat it like a crack in the wall problem. And, and so what I'm getting at here and what we'll unpack more next week is that foundation has a lot more to do with those cracks than, than you might realize. Your relationship with God is affecting your sexual intimacy in marriage in ways that you have no idea. 
because it all connects. This is the way it was created in the beginning. The Bible says in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, it's labors labor in vain. And so we want God to build our house. We wanna build on his firm foundation. We want to build on that truth. God created sex as a good gift to give to your spouse. Let's pray. God, I thank you uh, for your grace around this. We need lots of grace. We're all, to one degree or another, um, sexually broken. And the world we live in is, is so that way that we just need lots of grace. And so I thank you for that. And I believe that you wanna give that to us here and that you want there to be healing in this area of our lives whether that's for the couple who's been married a long time and, and they just kind of settled for a, more of a friendship a long time ago. I, I just believe, God, that's not what you want for them. You want them to experience this oneness and have this passion and intimacy. And maybe it's different from when they were younger, but, but it's deeper and it's, it's still a gift that you want them to continue to experience it. Or maybe it's the single folks in this room who've been patient listening to a series on marriage, but... But God, most married couples here would just, we just recognize how much of our thinking and how many of our decisions before we got married in this area caused so many problems in marriage. And so I, I just pray God for grace and for help and, and that we would surrender and submit. We would humble ourselves. Uh, I thank you, God, that this is a church where we'll step onto, um, or step onto the no-go territory space. We just recognize that this is your ground. And so I, I pray for your help and your healing. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. If today's message made you realize you need to take your next step with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us on any of our social media platforms throughout the week or visit our website at southeastchristian.org. And if you wanna hear more content like this, you can check out our sermons podcast or our one at a time podcast. Both can be found everywhere. Podcasts are available. Have a great week.